This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. about her though I don't know it's hard for me to understand is it that she was charming did she wink did she flirt cunning whatever it took and in her case what it took was to use her feminine wiles it worked on men it didn't really work on women but it worked on men Clara was one of these women that men sort of wanted to take care of that needed protection and because of this she wasn't responsible for her actions even though she did it but they were trying to shield her. Clara Phillips adored the attention of men. She had demanded it her entire life. And now, once again, she had it. Her charm could secure her release if the male jurors in her case believed her tears on the stand. And if that happened, many people could be in danger. Nine men and three women locked the door behind them in the courthouse in Los Angeles on November 16, 1922. Clara Phillips seemed confident. Daniel Phillips says that she focused specifically on the men, especially when she was on the stand. I would say that's good supposition because nine men, three women, you knew the women were not going to be on her side. And all she had to do was charm the men. She knew that this is the way for me To get out of this is to have a a hung jury, and then they'd have to have another trial. And keep going, keep going, keep going till everyone wears out. As Clara sat in jail, she and Armour celebrated their ninth wedding anniversary. They had spent their entire adult lives together. Clara and Armour were once a couple with promise. Their lives could have gone so well, even without having the children that Clara had wanted so badly. But now she watched her husband fret about their future, though he was mostly focused on his future. Clara worried for him. She could hardly think of anything else. Frankly, she really wasn't helping her defense team by blaming Peggy Caffey in court. Clara could have told the jury all about her medical problems, even if they were exaggerated or more than likely made up. And the jury didn't seem to question her honesty There were suspicions that her claim she had been kidnapped when she was a child was all a lie to gain sympathy. But that didn't seem to come up in jury deliberations. And her family had insisted that she was traumatized by the event. But then we know that her family was willing to say anything to protect her. Clara's mother and her sisters were absolutely unreliable sources. Clara was now 25 years old and alone. Remember that she and Armour had gotten married back in Houston, Texas, when she was just 16. Their relationship had rescued Clara from an unstable childhood, 
But clearly that stability hadn't lasted. The jury had so much to consider that it was nearly overwhelming. Lawyers for Clara Phillips claimed she suffered from something called epileptic insanity. Alienists had used that diagnosis throughout the 1800s to label patients, so it was well-established in criminal cases. And five forensic psychiatrists had testified that Clara was insane. But on the stand, Clara blamed her friend Peggy Caffey for the fatal beating of Alberta Meadows. Clara sat in the defendant's chair day after day, acting erratically much of the time. She shifted constantly from being a perfect lady to being an absolute terror, depending on who was testifying. The prosecutor argued that Clara had planned and executed the murder with precision. It was absolutely premeditated. She bought a hammer. She had stalked Alberta the night before. The DA accused Clara of dragging Peggy along to serve as a scapegoat, and the media constantly chronicled her every move. There were no fancy forensics and no surprise witnesses, just loads of circumstantial evidence and conflicting testimony. But jury deliberations in criminal trials are not always simple. Actually, they're rarely simple in first-degree murder cases because the stakes are so high. Clara's life was literally in the hands of the jury. But author Claudine Burnett reminds us that this trial was even more unusual. And this just seemed unheard of back then. It was unheard of. That was another thing that made the case so sensational, was that it was a murder that had been so brutal, carried out not by a man, but by a woman against another woman. To the jury's credit, they spent hours poring over evidence and testimony. I've spent years writing about criminal cases in history, and during some of those murder trials, juries returned a verdict in less than 10 minutes. Clara's jury deliberated for 12 hours, and she sat in the courthouse much of the time and wept. Spectators sat behind her, passing time by knitting or smoking or gossiping. So ultimately, what happens with the jury? They went to the jury room. They discounted what Clara said because it just didn't fit the facts. And that's really what the jury was supposed to do, is determine the facts. Who killed Alberta Meadows? They didn't believe Clara. They believed Peggy. That was the easy part. Clara Phillips had killed Alberta Meadows. The jury had no doubts about that. But was this first-degree murder? Did she plan it, or was she actually joking inside the hardware store? Did she intend to only threaten Alberta with a hammer? Did Clara kill her in a fit of rage, or was Alberta ambushed? They came to a compromise on the verdict. Originally, it was first-degree murder. Other women that had killed husbands or boyfriends and people like that in that time were candidates for the death chamber. It seemed straightforward. There was plenty of evidence, and there were precedents from other cases. But there was a problem. The jury issued several rounds of ballots. Every time, they were split. In fact, there were initially four votes for acquittal, and they were certainly not from the three women. The women on the jury were determined to not let Clara Phillips walk away. She wasn't that charming. The three women jurors would have none of that. They just said, she did it, this is all a bluff, I guess because they knew women better than the men did. Well, but to me, what's interesting about that is you would think the women jurors would empathize with her more for being the victim of a cheating husband. 
I think that the women jurors might have seen through her and seen her whole actions in the courtroom as being something that was made up a pretense. But writer Joan Renner says the nine men just didn't want to convict her. They kind of swooned over her. One of them would later say that Clara had the most magnetic smile he had ever seen. Men, I think, found it difficult to believe that a woman was really capable, that she could actually have committed that crime. There had to have been some other explanation. But they reached a sort of a compromise verdict. Daniel Phillips says that in the jury room, the women were interested in giving her the death penalty. And the men were interested in letting her go. So the attorneys had to get involved. The jury ultimately convicted Clara Phillips of second-degree murder. She would receive a sentence of a minimum of 10 years, maybe even life. This was like a negotiated verdict. It gave everybody something. It gave the folks that didn't want to see her die. She has a chance of serving her time and coming out and having a life. The women, you know, yes, they wanted to see her killed. There was still that potential that she was going to get at least 10 years. And she was going to get the potential of having to uh, stay in prison for the rest of her life. Police historian Glenn Martin says that he's not at all surprised about this because this type of verdict still happens. The verdict, particularly split down gender lines as it was, uh, speaks to me of probably the social mores that the male jurors were raised with, that we defend and care for our women. And to this day, it's difficult for juries to return death verdicts for women. Even if she beat somebody to death with a claw hammer? It is still a difficult sell in a case where a murder, even as brutal as this one has happened, that is just a tough sell for somebody that has that ingrained is that they take care of their women. We've seen this type of gender bias throughout history. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Lizzie Borden was probably the most well-known example. In 1893, an all-male jury acquitted her of murdering her father and her stepmother despite a lot of convincing evidence. The jurors noted that Lizzie appeared modest and well-bred, dressed in all black. Most historians think that she got away with murder because the men refused to believe that Lizzie was strong enough or morally corrupt enough to commit such a brutal crime. Clara Phillips' niece, Janet Collins, says her sentence in 1922 is still baffling almost 100 years later. That's weird that she could murder someone and be out in 10 years. What do you think about that? Something's wrong. In 1922, much of Los Angeles was captivated by Clara Phillips because she seemed to eclipse a popular perception that women should be submissive. And Clara Phillips was not. And so sexualizing real women like Clara was problematic for conservative America because these women became synonymous with the Jazz Age. University of Texas film historian Caroline Frick says Tinseltown became a popular target for conservatives. Hollywood becomes the focus of, let's say, a national, and I would say international, concern over the Jazz Age, over the morals of the post-World War I generation. They're partying, they're out of hand. It's the quintessential Hollywood story, in a way, of that era, which is everything that is anti-Victorian, in a sense. 
I think she is a part of that Hollywood story of mayhem. I'm sure that Clara would have been thrilled to be part of any Hollywood story. She had always craved the spotlight, dreaming of being an actress and a chorus girl, and now she'd become a celebrity criminal. In the courtroom, Clara sat at the table near her attorneys during the reading of the verdict, and she was clearly unnerved. She wept, and she told reporters that she had expected to be acquitted. But then she insisted that her attorney would immediately file an appeal, and this whole nightmare would be corrected. Clara pretty much took it almost in stride, like, okay, I was hoping they'd buy my story, but they didn't. I'll come up with something else. So I didn't see her being completely defeated. It was kind of like, well, this is kind of one round in an overall championship fight. And so far, I'm still in the fight. So in a way, her family's plan worked. Clara wouldn't be executed, and she would likely be out after 10 years for good behavior. Maybe even sooner. Clara was sent to the Los Angeles County Jail to wait until her transfer. She would serve her sentence in San Quentin State Prison in Northern California, about 400 miles away from her home. At first, the local jail didn't seem so bad. Well, when she got there, she actually was kind of positive in the respect. She felt that everybody was very happy and very jolly and was trying to make the best of it, at least giving everyone the impression that, yeah, it's not where I want to be, but, you know, I can live with it temporarily. And the county jail would certainly have been preferable to San Quentin. Joan Renner says that the infamous prison was a miserable place for inmates, especially in the 1920s. It was a scary place. San Quentin's still a scary place to my mind. But then it just looked like you'd think a prison would look. It was foreboding. I would expect, no matter what time of the year, I would expect to drive up to the gate, have dark clouds form over it, and lightning flash, because it just seemed like such an awful place. And then it was. It really was. And especially for the female prisoners. And Clara didn't have a choice. That's where she would live for at least 10 years. There was no women's prison in the state of California, so all of the women who were in prison were sent to San Quentin. There was a women's wing at San Quentin, but it was an environment just rife for abuse on both sides. Abuse of the women by guards and others, some women trying to gain favor by using their sexuality. It was just not a good situation, but that's where Clara was going to go. Who knows what would happen to her there? But it was difficult to tell if Clara was concerned. She never seemed angry or upset, at least not for very long. Her attitude changed constantly. She adapted so well to new situations that most people might struggle with. But still, she really disliked people having power over her. So she did something very characteristic of a self-serving personality. And it seemed like a terrible idea, even by Clara's standards. She sought advice from someone in very, very similar circumstances. She had a jailmate who was a murderess. The lady's name was Oban Jane. She, I think, was waiting on her second trial to begin. Her first trial ended up in a hung jury. I'm sure she got some pointers from her. Madeline Obenchain and Clara Phillips had so much in common. About a year earlier, Obenchain became a newspaper sensation during her multiple murder trials. Yeah, she had several of them, five in all. 
Obenchain was in the middle of trial number three when she and Clara became cellmates in the L.A. County Jail. Police accused Madeline of murdering her fiancé by convincing another man to shoot him with a shotgun. And it was all because John Belton Kennedy kept waffling over whether to marry her because his mother hated her. And it sounds like for good reason. He was spineless, and Madeline was furious. The media dubbed her a vamp, a devious woman with absolutely no morals. But Madeline's good looks and charm had managed to hang every jury because they were all filled with love-struck men. And now Madeline was locked away with Clara Phillips. She also had Mrs. Openchain sitting there in the cell with her, giving her pointers. It was so strange to see them both in the same cell, two women who had seduced American newspaper readers with their looks and their charm. Spectators lined up outside the jail to meet them, and some of their biggest fans were other women. One fan appeared in the jail cell near them and smiled. She had received a $15 speeding ticket the day before. The judge gave her the option to either pay the fine or spend 15 days in jail. She chose jail. She said, I haven't anything to do, and I have always wanted to meet Mrs. Obenchain and Mrs. Phillips, so I guess I'll take the 15 days. Wow, that was the power of their celebrity status. And part of that status came from the media's portrayal of dangerous women in the 1920s. Kathy fuller Seely is a professor of media studies at the University of Texas. Going back into the 19-teens and the 1920s, what was the, the media output regarding women who had mental instability? I mean, what were the kind of things we were seeing? How were they portrayed? Many times, mental instability was connected or woven into depictions of bad sexuality, dangerous sexuality. Theta Berra, the vamp who burst on the scene in film in 1914, represented pure sexuality desire, but we would recognize her as very goth today. She was very much associated with exoticism and death, and she would attack men and suck all their life out of them like a spider and leave them dead by the side of the road. So it was justifying why she had to be gotten rid of, why she needed to be killed or banished. Are there ramifications for these for, for us in a society, for these types of images coming out? I think it justifies things like political decisions. The Creel Committee stops any circulation of birth control information. So there is much women belong back in a home. The outrage about these women becomes a target that lets very conservative religious groups ban dancing, really restrict the actions of the young women in their groups. So, yes, I think it does have public ramifications, increasing danger to women in the public, that if you are acting one way or dressed one way or in a public in, in one way, those who disagree can say you must be punished for it. Madeline and Clara represented the dangerous, beautiful femme fatales of the 1920s. But they were real women, and the men and women who adored them were willing to help them just to be closer to them. But the two killers viewed all of the people in their lives as dispensable. Madeline and Clara talked about the men in their lives, their friends, and plans. So once again, Clara Phillips began to scheme. She refused to go to San Quentin, which sounded like a horrible place. 
she resolved to escape before her transfer. How does she even communicate that she wants this to happen because of the visitors? Yeah, the visitors. She had lots of visitors. Most of the visits were not supervised. Why were they not supervised? I don't know. It could have just been anything from general incompetence to the fact that they looked upon the good side of Clara, not what she had done. I think she was planning all this while keeping a happy face. She played a lot of people, including the jailers, be it you know the, the matrons or even the turnkeys. That seems ridiculous. How could a jail allow unsupervised visits to not just one manipulative killer, but two of them? She was making some promises as to her virtue, also her alleged holdings that she had, assets, you know, oil land, possibly using the Mellon family as a way to say, hey, I'm a member of the Mellon family. We'll compensate you if you just help me get out of here. And so for several weeks after Clara's conviction, a stream of people came in and out of that jail. She did it pretty quickly. She was convicted in November, early November, And this happened like a month later. So everything ran pretty quickly. And she couldn't have done it by herself. She needed help. I think she was cunning enough to be able to have all of this array of stuff that she could use. And she would just use whatever worked for that uh, particular situation. But she always had more than one option on how to get someone to do what she wanted them to do. And that's exactly what happened. Author Claudine Burnett says that one of those visitors secretly left something behind. Somebody had smuggled in a file. Much of this story sounds like it was lifted from a B-movie script, particularly this next part. Clara received a metal file to saw the bars on her cell's window. Clara went ahead and worked on the bars at the prison and was able to go ahead and fool the prison guards because she used chewing gum to put the bars back together. Seriously? Chewing gum to hold the cut bars together? And could a petite woman really saw her way through thick bars on a window? Daniel Phillips says, yeah, maybe, at least inside the L.A. County Jail in 1922. In those days, most jails had steel bars, but not the kind of quality steel that Hacksaw couldn't get through. So she finally gets the bars down, and then what? December 5th, 1922, she got the bars off, was able to get herself through the opening, and there was someone above her since her cell was on the top floor. They were on the roof of the jail to reach down and pull her up to the roof of the jail, and then she went through a series of rooftops of buildings that were adjacent to the jail until they got to the ground floor. And I think part of the uh, ground floor was getting through like a trap door into one of the buildings to come out either through the back or the front until she could get in that car that was going to take her away. There's a wonderful, nifty little picture in one, one or more of the newspapers that show her alleged route as she makes her way across the roof of the building and then down along the side, and, and she supposedly escapes. Joan Renner seems skeptical because she thinks this version is more fiction than fact. Steel bars and chewing gum seem silly. And author Claudine Burnett agrees. There was also quite a drop from where her prison was down to the ground, too, which also makes that story suspicious. What came out later was that the family had gone ahead and paid a prison guard to release her. Who knows? 
But none of that really mattered because on December 5th, 1922, Clara Phillips vanished. Glenn Martin says that the police had no clues to her location and no help from witnesses. Clara wasn't in jail alone. Somebody heard, somebody saw, somebody knew, and then they remained mute about it. Not having anybody ratchet out is, is equally as interesting. Catherine Ramslin is a forensic psychology professor and an author who has spent her career interviewing murderers, including Dennis Rader, better known as BTK. You might have heard my interview with her on Wicked Words. Ramsland says that in Raider's case, he was motivated by violent fantasies, but it was also clear that he had a lust for fame and power. He sent disturbing letters to the police and the media. Now, there's well-established research on male psychopaths, but Ramsland says that female psychopaths like Clara Phillips are an enigma, even to experts. Well, the difficulty with categorizing a female psychopath is that we haven't done that much research on them, and the tools we've used have were developed for male psychopaths with the mistaken idea that anything that comes out of research with males will apply equally to females. Dr. Craig Newman says that his research shows that there might be more similarities than differences, but there are definitely differences. Women with psychopathic features, propensities, may tend to be higher on manipulative features, and males may tend to be higher on the more dysregulated, the impulsive, the aggressive sorts of components. 70% of the female offenders were the manipulative type, and only a small percentage were the aggressive subtype. For female psychopaths, manipulation is key. It seems to be their main form of achieving their goal, whatever that is, And many times, women find out early in life that they can get their way without being violent. Control is crucial to someone with psychopathy. It can be all-consuming, regardless of the danger it puts them in. We now know more about women with psychopathy, but experts say there's still so much to learn. So now we have to rethink the idea of how a female psychopath might operate. And it turns out that a lot of women who are diagnosed with borderline personality disorder might in fact be psychopaths, but we've tended to think of borderline as being a female disorder, and we tend not to think of females being psychopath. And I think this has a lot to do with many of the theories were developed by males who really did not want to think about women being psychopathic. So that means that there are more female psychopaths out there than we thought. But Dr. Ramsland says that society has a difficult time believing that. Eileen Warnos might be a good example. The serial killer murdered seven men between 1989 and 1990 in Florida before being convicted and then executed in 2002. Eileen Warnos definitely had psychopathic traits. But the Hollywood movie about her life made it appear that she was violent because of her circumstances, not her psychopathy. And that actually irritates Dr. Ramslin. They gave her every out that they would never give to a male psychopath serial killer. In a way, I thought it was unfair, first of all, to women to believe that they are in some way can't rise to some kind of criminality that males can, can rise to. I think they absolutely can and have. But when I saw that movie, it was clear to me people just don't want to accept that a woman can be just a cold-hearted, remorseless, angry killer. And she even said that about herself. She said, if you let me out, I'll do it again. 
Clara Phillips certainly proved that women can be just as violent as men. And now she was in the wind. Where had she gone? And what was she planning? Jails are always big about doing head counts at different times of the day. I think the L.A. jail was a jail that didn't vary it. So it was easy to gauge, okay, between this time and this time, I don't have anyone watching me. She probably went between bed check and the morning when the folks came around. And just like that, she was gone. The escape of Clara Phillips in December of 1922 was so well planned out that her family had to have been involved. Daniel Phillips has no doubts about that. She probably had a lot of tentacles out to a lot of people, and she was kind of having layers of people involved in the process, including her sisters. I've got to feel that the sisters were actively involved in this, at least Ola and uh, Etta May, for that matter. Ola May was Clara's older sister, and soon she would be her partner in crime, literally. Of course, one person who was now under scrutiny once again was Armour. The sheriff immediately tracked him down and stuck him in his office. And a sheriff's office is never a good place for a con man to be. But when they looked at the evidence, Armour seemed to be in the clear. I still don't have any evidence of where Armour was that involved in it. He may have supplied some money so that people that would actually be helping her escape could be uh, paid. He was right on the edge of it, in my opinion. He wasn't one of the guys that was up there helping her out of the cell and working her down, helping her get to the car and leaving the jail. I think that much of this would have been difficult to do without armor. That seems clear. But he had been the one who initially turned Clara in. Why would he help her escape now? I think that armor felt an awful lot of guilt because of the murder, because of what he had done to his wife. I think Armour may have been uh, looking for a way to atone for turning her in when he had put her on the train to get her out. So it could have been some guilty feelings. But I think, on the other hand, if he looked at it as a self-preservation, her being in the limelight was doing him no good. And it would be better for her to all of a sudden disappear and be able to kind of go and start a new life One person who was surprised about Armour's involvement with Clara's jailbreak is his niece, Janet Collins. She had all this help. Different men, Armour was involved. He was involved in getting her out of prison. What a slimeball. So you didn't know that? No, I did not. Yeah, I think there's a, sometimes there's a good reason why people keep things from families, I guess. But you couldn't trust him. No, no. And if you can't trust somebody in your family... What was there to trust? He disappeared, and then all of a sudden he appeared? I mean, he just... I think the term blowhard pretty well described him, you know? But not all of Clara's associates were happy about her escape. And when Clara escaped from prison, Peggy found out she was terrified. She left a note for her husband that said, I'll be back in an hour, but she didn't come home. She instead got on a train and went as far away as she could back to Pennsylvania to be as far away from Clara and possibly Clara's revenge. Peggy Caffey was right to be frightened. 
Clara had threatened her life several times, even in court. Clara despised Peggy just about as much as she hated Alberta. Peggy is the one whose testimony convicted Clara, and I think that Clara was very upset at that. If Peggy hadn't come forward and if Armour hadn't come forward, Clara might never have been found out because the woman's body was unidentified until they're telling the police what had happened. Now Peggy Caffey was gone too, and that's where her story ends. The journalists who had hounded Peggy could no longer find her. She had disappeared. And so had Clara Phillips, with the help of at least three men. Her husband was grilled by police, but this time, Armour refused to turn her in. He even told them that he hoped she would never be recaptured. And then began a very well-orchestrated plan that would take Clara to two different continents, using people all along the way. She traveled from Los Angeles to New Orleans to Mexico. No one got wise until they were able to finally get into Mexico. Even then, the uh, Mexican authorities weren't really brought into the picture. They were in Mexico, I think, several weeks. One account said that the Mexican authorities were aware that she's there, but they had no authority to pick her up. Daniel Phillips says Armour mailed things to Clara while she was in Mexico. He would send money to Galveston, Texas, and his older sister Sadie would mail it on to Clara. And actually, they had my dear Aunt Sadie, the unknowing conduit, on getting the stuff mailed out to wherever the place was in Mexico. She did it with no ill intention other than the fact this was her brother's wife, and there was a lot of family loyalty there. And there was family loyalty within the Weaver family, too. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's why Etta Mae brought some of the money to Mexico when she joined her sister on their continued journey from Mexico City to Veracruz, and then from there to Guatemala, San Salvador, and all the way into Honduras. Clara was spotted in Juarez, Mexico, by police. They described her as a heavily veiled woman in an automobile on the outskirts of the city. After less than a week in Mexico, Clara met her sister Olame in Honduras. As Daniel Phillips told me earlier, Clara might not have been very book smart, but she was absolutely prepared. Edme and Clara had Guatemalan passports. They also had the wherewithal to learn to speak Spanish because they, I guess, realized this is where we're going to end up. You know, we can't go back to America. In the meantime, investigators in Los Angeles were scrambling to explain to the media how one of the country's most famous women managed to escape their jail. Daniel Phillips and Glenn Martin say that the press seized on the story of her escape and constantly revisited the details of the murder. Every day that she was gone made them look bad. Not just the L.A. police, the D.A., all of law enforcement, all the way up to the U.S. government. Everybody was getting tarred with this brush, and it was making everybody look bad. That was an authority. So whether she knew it or not, this was going to work against her because that made the pursuit that much more persistent and that they were just not going to let it go. And what's happening with the American media at this point? They are just as voracious as they were when she was on trial and convicted. It just didn't let up. 
everybody and their mother was trying to figure out where is she. They were constantly going in and doing more stories that were kind of background, bringing people that may not know the details up to date, injecting new theories as to how this was done and if she was guilty or not, was she treated fairly or not. All of the angles that kept the life of this story going. What do you think about the media circus that ensued? Does that speak to Hearst newspapers, 1920s sensationalism media at the time? Why are they attracted to this story? Well, I think my response would be, what's changed? (laughs) We have just this very enduring interest in crime, particularly something that is a little bit different. There is a mass of humanity that has an interest in it. Clara was traveling with the most important person in her life, aside from armor, and now she was living in Honduras with Olame, and there they stayed. As detectives in America felt more and more pressure, Clara and Olame lived off the money Armour and her family were sending them. It was an incredible conspiracy. They must have loved her dearly or cared about her in order to help her. And I think that they realized that she did commit the murder, though they might have wanted to fool themselves that it had been Peggy. But they also knew that this was a woman that they had protected throughout her entire life, and they needed to do it again. Right or wrong is blood. Blood is thicker than water. All of those things that you hear all the time. In their case, I think that was loyalty gone wrong. Clara Phillips and her sister Ola May spent Christmas in 1922 in Honduras, incognito. It was such a smart choice for a hiding place. Honduras had no extradition treaty with the United States, so if Clara were caught, she might actually be able to stay there. And she could always wiggle out of trouble with her charm and perhaps a little bit of money for a bribe. Clara knew that she had a better chance of doing that in Central America than she did in Los Angeles. They're just amazed and amused by the sightings of them worldwide. She's seen everywhere from China to Europe, you name it, and Clara's there. So in less than six months, Clara Phillips had achieved quite a lot, if you want to call it that. She had brutally murdered a woman who was in fact not sleeping with her husband. She tried to escape to Texas, but was ratted out by armor. She threatened her best friend, the only witness, and then accused her of the murder. She convinced male jurors to give her a lighter sentence, and then she convinced at least three men to help her escape to Central America. Dr. Craig Newman says that this is the model playbook for a psychopath, and it's a playbook that Clara would continue to use. This is a scary lady. That's the thing about psychopathy. That's the thing about personality pathology. If it's not dealt with, it becomes worse. On the final episode of this season of Tenfold More Wicked. If you run into a psychopath who potentially is going to try and put hooks in you, they lie, they're deceitful, they're manipulative, they can be charming. And so you've got a document. You you can't open yourself up to be vulnerable to these people. And in, in many cases, you have to escape. This is like family loyalty gone bad. It is. It's the old adage, family right or wrong. And in this case, the family was more interested in protecting their own. I'm not even sure the family even knew about her. That's how much they wanted to stonewall. I don't even think that my grandmother knew her name. What was the fear? I don't know. 
Maybe she wasn't a Southern Baptist. <laughs> I think that's probably fair to say. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and ebooks. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.